you've been around college and career for a while, then you've probably heard me mention more than a few old dead theologians. In my own life, the writings of people like Ignatius or Athanasius or Augustine have had a significant impact. But sometimes we struggle to figure out how important church history should be. How should the beliefs of early Christians shape what we as Christians believe today? And if we say that church history is important, are we saying that the Bible isn't enough? These are massive questions. And so today we're talking with Dr. Matthew Emerson. He's a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University and he runs this organization that I love called the Center for Baptist Renewal. What's so cool to me about the center is that they really want to help people understand church history and why it matters. We cover a lot of ground in this interview, talking about the importance of tradition, how it helps us read the Bible, and even some good places to start if you're trying to jump into this topic. I think you're gonna find that this interview is really challenging, but really helpful. I can't wait for you to check it out. I'm Travis Lowe, and this is The Stone Table. So Dr. Emerson, thanks so much for uh, sitting down to have this conversation with us. I know a decent number of people who are listening to this are going to be familiar with you with some of the books that you've written and some of the work that you do at the Center for Baptist Renewal. But there's going to be other people who aren't quite familiar with your work. So for for somebody who is unfamiliar, could you just kind of explain a little bit about yourself and and some of the things you're involved in? Sure. Uh, I teach at Oklahoma Baptist University for the last few years. Uh, I've been teaching mostly Old Testament, biblical theology, hermeneutic stuff in the fall. I'll be teaching some of our new classes. We've just redesigned our curriculum, so I'll be teaching more theology and church history. So I kind of play the utility player position in our faculty where I'm doing a little bit of everything. I've been at OBU for three years, starting my fourth year in the fall. And then before that, I taught for four years at California Baptist University. I did my undergrad at Auburn University, War Eagle, and then uh, MDiv and PhD at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. In, in biblical theology. Uh, married for 12 years now. We have five daughters and Man. a puppy. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's as short and sweet as I can do it. But yeah. that, that's it. So you have a, a huge interest in church history. I know you're a part of, is it the North American Patristics Study Group? And you have an interest in sort of seeing evangelicals and Protestants and Baptists uh, pay more attention to the history of the church. What is it that got you interested in in church history in the first place? Yeah, well, in my PhD work, I wrote on something called a canonical approach to reading the New Testament, which is where you pay attention to the order of the books and uh, the ways in which they were arranged in manuscripts and stuff like that in order to discern maybe theological themes that arise just from reading through the order of the books. And you know, reading the Bible holistically or, or as one book where, that all fits together, believe it or not, isn't really acknowledged in, in a lot of biblical scholarship today. So a lot of biblical scholarship, you know, they only want to read particular books in a sort of isolated fashion from the rest of the Bible because we can only understand this book in the historical context of that particular author and that particular social setting. Whereas what I wanted to try to do is is see how the whole New Testament fits together rather than just what's the theology of Philippians in particular or what's the theology of Matthew in particular. And so in trying to recover reading the Bible as one book, I began reading early early Christians, uh, medieval Christians, Reformation Christians, 
that were reading the Bible prior to some of the the movements and shifts that occurred in uh, the the late seventeenth into the eighteenth centuries in terms of reading the Bible not as one book but as a collection of many different books that don't really fit together. So I was trying to get back behind that and see how other Christians had read the Bible uh, for the first fifteen, sixteen hundred years of the church. And so I, you know, I started reading Augustine and Irenaeus and, and uh, other other people like that who were reading the Bible as one book. And then in that process, I realized that I had a sort of huge gap, really, in my education in terms of the history of interpretation, the history of how people have read the Bible. So I asked my PhD supervisor if I could spend our, our year of mentorship focusing on that as one of the the main aspects that I studied in that year of mentorship. And so I uh, was really propelled by him uh, to become familiar with primary sources and also with the, the scholarship that's really ramped up in the last century or so on the history of interpretation. I'm so appreciative of your background and your experiences there. Because uh, for me, I was doing an, an undergraduate in religion at a non-Christian university. And so uh, for me, reading the church fathers, uh, people like Augustine, people like Ignatius of Antioch, was really formative in just getting a sense of so, so many of the, th- the things that we believe, like the doctrine of the Trinity. Obviously, they didn't emerge in a vacuum. But at the same time, they weren't sort of the result of people being reckless and irresponsible. And so it was an encouraging thing for me to just sort of think through those things. But but one of the things I've noticed in teaching this church history class that I've been working through over the last year in sort of our Sunday school program is that evangelicals in particular have like a deep-seated suspicion towards uh, tradition and church history. There was a... There was a conversation I was having, I'd, I'd taught through the patristics, through the medieval period, and we were talking about Sicinius and how he was trying to read the Bible as if there was no tradition at all. Uh, and uh-huh. for the whole class, uh, everybody who I'd been talking to was talking about how great learning all of this was and how much they appreciated reading the early church fathers. And then when we talked about Sicinius, and I just asked this passing question, so how important do you think tradition is? The response was, it's not important, that's Catholic and we're not Catholic. Uh, and there right. was just this this immediate reaction against tradition. So, man, for somebody who is uh, maybe grown up in a Bible church, grown up in an evangelical sort of broadly Protestant background, and they ask the question, you know, we have the Bible. Why does tradition matter? What might you say to them? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that comes up a lot in my classes, too. I think there's a few things we need to say there. First of all, we need to recognize that the the Bible actually commands the church to pass on sound doctrine. Hmm. So teaching the faith, teaching uh, right doctrine, isn't something that is an option for us. It's like, oh yeah, you know, maybe if I really like theology or whatever, I can care about it. Uh, The Bible actually commands it specifically, Paul commands Timothy and Titus to pass on sound doctrine, to guard the good deposit, to entrust to faithful men, what's been entrusted to you. So um, the idea that we should pass on the faith is actually a biblical idea. And of course, that, that even goes back to Israel, because Israel was supposed to, you know, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Israel was supposed to pass on to their children uh, the, the law. 
and passing on the law in the Old Testament and then passing on sound doctrine in the New Testament, I think there's a good case to be made that that's not only sort of passing down the uh, spirit-inspired scriptures, which of course we, we want to teach our, our, our children and our congregants that too, uh, and first and foremost. You know, but I think like with Ezra, Ezra stands up and he reads the law and then he gives the sense. He doesn't just read the words and that's sufficient. He actually helps them understand what it means. You know, the other the other thing to say about tradition is that is just a recognition that we're all creatures. We're finite and we're fallen. And so um, the idea that I can sit down with my Bible and come up with all the right answers, um, it, it doesn't take into account my creatureliness, both in terms of the fact that I'm finite. I, I don't know everything. I, I can't learn everything by osmosis immediately. And it also doesn't take into account the fact that I'm fallen. I'm going to make mistakes. And yes, the Spirit has changed my heart, and He's given me a new heart, and He illumines me when I read the Bible. But I'm not reading that in isolation from the rest of the church, which is what we just said. And I'm not reading it, I can't read it as somebody who has a neutral perspective or an objective perspective because I'm a creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm finite, I'm in a particular place at a particular time, and I'm fallen. I'm, I'm affected by sin. And so um, the church passing on sound doctrine is is also an acknowledgement that I need I need help. I need to receive something from from my brothers and sisters in Christ and I need to have a check on me in my sinfulness and my fallenness and so that I'm not the sole the only interpreter that there is. And then, you know, the last thing I would say there is that tradition has always been acknowledged in these ways even by Protestants when when the reformation happened they didn't reject all tradition. Right, the concept. Yeah. There's a guy named Heiko Obermann who wrote a book called The Harvest of Medieval Theology, and in it he makes a distinction between tradition one, which is the kind of tradition I'm talking about. It, it's a faithful passing on of the right sense of Scripture. It recognizes that it's under the authority of Scripture. It's it's for the communion of saints. It's, it's for the edification of the body, um, but it's subservient to Scripture, and, and, and it's a minister. But Obermann distinguishes that kind of tradition from something he calls tradition two, which is what happened in Roman Catholic uh, thought and in uh, Eastern Orthodox thought, where tradition is elevated to the same authority as the Bible. The reformers rejected tradition two. They said tradition is not on the same level as scripture. It's not as a, it's not the same kind of authority, but they didn't reject the right sense of tradition, which is in the Bible. Uh, which which says we're, we're trying to help, we're trying to minister uh, the word of God in the right sense. So, yeah, I think historically, biblically, and sort of theologically, there are good reasons to recognize that tradition has a, has a sense of authority, even if it's not the same kind of authority, ultimate authority, as the Bible has. Hmm. So, I know you operate sort of with within Baptist circles. You you teach at a, a Baptist university. You you work with the Center for Baptist Renewal and. As I've started to become more interested in the writings of the church fathers and, and the medieval scholastics, I've almost felt, especially from my, my Anglican Presbyterian friends, uh, they take Cardinal John Henry Newman's critique 
uh, to, to go deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. And they sort of rephrase it and they say to go deep into history is to cease to be a Baptist. And they're just waiting for me to like, <laughs> waiting for me to, to finally give up on my ridiculous Baptist convictions and, and see the true, yep. the true light of history. And so I'm just wondering for you, uh, somebody who's passionate about uh, the early church, Christians and Baptists in particular, recovering the tradition is it, I mean, is it possible to be a convictional Baptist and, and engage deeply with the tradition? Is there a tension there? How, how do we navigate that? Yeah. So interestingly, in the 17th century, early 18th century, the earliest Baptists felt a, a deep sense of connection with the Christian tradition. Uh, if you go read, you know, for instance, the Orthodox Creed, which is the first or one, one of the earliest uh, confessions of faith written by general Baptists, they very clearly uh, affirm the three ecumenical creeds, mm. uh, the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian creeds. And they say those are authoritative. We mm. use the word authoritative. So the general Baptists felt, or at least those general Baptists felt a strong sense of connection to the Christian tradition. And, they, and there's other evidences within that. Even the fact that we're using the sim- same scripture, the same biblical verses, to point to the truthfulness of particular doctrines actually draws on an entire history uh, of interpreting the Bible. So even when you see, for instance, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and it's got these scripture references afterward, that's actually drawing on Christian history right there. People don't, you know, we don't think about that a lot, but that's actually acknowledging that there's a history of interpretation behind this particular doctrine that we're affirming and affirming this doctrine. So General Baptist did that with the Orthodox Creed, and then the particular Baptists in both First London Confession of Faith and Second London Confession of Faith, uh, in, in both of those uh, earliest particular Baptist confessions, they're affirming the, the Christian tradition. They affirm that, again, through particular phrasing of, of doctrines, through scripture verses, through acknowledging the three creeds. So, I mean, you know, the earliest Baptists had no problem saying we're part of the Christian tradition. Hmm. So in, in that sense, uh, historically, and then I think also just earlier what I laid out biblically and theologically, I think there's a perfectly reasonable case to be made that Baptists can and should see themselves as part of the Christian tradition. No creed but the Bible was not originally a Baptist phrase. It was a restorationist phrase coming from Alexander Campbell and those guys, Church of Christ, basically. It wasn't originally a Baptist phrase, but um, that's actually how William Johnson in his address to the initial meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845, he drew on that phrase. So, uh, you know, by the mid-1800s, that had made its way into some Baptist thought. Not all Baptist thought, I mean, because even at that time, you still had, uh, you know, uh, the, the founders of Southern writing the Abstract of Principles, which is highly dependent upon other confessions of faith and drawing on the Christian tradition. So it's not all Southern Baptists in 1845, but you start to see the creep of no creed but the Bible into Baptist life. And then by the time you get to the Baptist faith and message, message of 1925, E.Y. Mullins is saying, we do not acknowledge any other authority at all besides the Bible. And so mm-hmm. that's a very, that's a very explicit rejection of any kind of authority of creeds or confessions or of the tradition at large. And that's in the preamble of the 1925 Baptist faith and message. So, in the last 150 years or so, the, the pendulum on this has swung from the early Baptists acknowledging 
the authority of the tradition, derivatively so, and trying to show themselves as being in line with it to a sort of almost at the opposite end. Really, it is at the opposite end uh, of the the pendulum saying there is no authority Hmm. in the Christian tradition or in creeds or confessions. It's just we're acknowledging we believe the same thing. So we're trying to thread the needle and say, you know what? Yes, the Bible is the ultimate authority. Baptists, that's a very clear emphasis of of Baptists throughout our, our history. But we also want to acknowledge and kind of course correct here to back toward the earliest Baptists and say, it doesn't mean that we totally reject tradition. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an, it's encouraging to hear that, that within sort of the Baptist tradition, what we've kind of come to associate with Baptists, which is this no creed, but the Bible approach is, is not all that there is. One, one thing I have noticed, and I'd, I'd love to get your take on this, when, when you talk to Baptists who, who talk about being interested in church history, that tends to stop at like Charles Spurgeon or maybe like Martin Luther and John Calvin. And so you have a conversation about church history that's only 500 years deep. And, and so right. it, what I love about what you're doing at, at the Center for Baptist Renewal is encouraging this retrieval of the patristics and uh, the medieval scholastics and, and all of these people pre-Reformation. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering what causes us generally to feel like we have to stop at the Reformation? And then also, why do you think it's important to go further back than that as we look at the history of the church? Well, one of the impulses there is from a particular strain of Baptist thought called the Trail of Blood. And That's so ominous. A- I've never heard of this before. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, Trail of Blood is really specific uh, to landmarkism. It, it, you know, it's a version of successionism, uh, which is a, a view of Baptist origins that says there has always been a true church from Jesus, really from John the Baptist through the modern period, but in the early Christian and medieval periods. Clearly, most most of the church went the wrong direction, but there were pockets of true churches somewhere, somehow that we have no record of. <laughs> but, but they were they were they were there somewhere. Yeah, um, and that, that was that was a really popular view of Baptist origins in uh, again the mid eighteen hundreds to the late eighteen hundreds into the twentieth century, and it actually got some people fired from Southern Seminary when they when they questioned that. Wow. Um, so, you know, this was a really popular view of Baptist history and, you know, it lends, it lends itself to the, also the idea that there weren't really true Christians or at least true churches or even churches at all prior to the Reformation and really prior to the radical Reformation and the uh, English separatist uh, who became Baptist. So into the, 17th century and there weren't true churches until then. And so it's, it's, you know, I don't know that people would connect the dots that way, but I I think that this idea of Baptist origins that was really popular into the almost mid 20th century and still is maybe in many late 
uh, lay conversations. I think that has a, has a lot to do with how people view people before the Reformation. Uh, the other thing is, you know, we have this, and especially as evangelical Protestants, we have this Protestants, we have this suspicion of anybody prior to the Reformation. Hmm, yeah. And you know, it's kind of like, are they, were they really actually Christians uh, <laughs> yeah. before, before the Reformation? And I think, I think both of those just, make people deeply suspicious of anybody prior to the Reformation for evangelical Protestants and then anybody prior to really the initial Baptists, or at least the Anabaptists in the 16th, 17th centuries. So, Yeah, well, and to me that seems like I, I understand the impulse, but I, I think when I, when I hear things like that, that sounds so much more like Mormonism than it does Christianity, that, you know, that somehow the true church vanished off the face of the earth when they started baptizing infants and then reappeared uh, sometime during the Anabaptists. And so, I, I mean, it's, it's helpful to hear you kind of trace that out. I'd never heard of the, the trail of blood before, but I think it's important to kind of push back against that as well. Uh, if, you know, if the spirit is, is really abiding with the church, do we really want to say that, that the church and the gospel vanished for 1500 years? Uh, that seems like kind right. of a pr- problematic thing to affirm. So. Right, and you know, once you start reading primary sources, I think it's fairly difficult <laughs> to read people who are talk- who are talking about the love of God in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in their life, and they're affirming the Trinity and talking about all the ways in which they need to live like Jesus. It's 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 a bit more difficult when you actually read these people to say, you know, if they weren't Christians. All, yeah. all, you know, they're all burning in hell prior yeah. to the Reformation. Um, so. Yeah, you know, and and that's not that's not to say that I don't find some of the deviations from scripture deeply problematic. Sure, in the yeah. period. I do. I mean, there's some deeply problematic developments and, and deviations. I'm not saying that to to be cruel or rude, but I'm a Protestant who who believes that with respect to the doctrines of salvation and the church there were deeply problematic deviations from the apostolic deposit, the Bible uh, during the medieval period that needed to be corrected with the reformation, you know, but, but I'm I want to acknowledge that and say the reformation was necessary, but at the same time, I don't want to write everybody off prior to 1517 as unable to be a Christian. Yeah. Um, And it's really, it's actually difficult to do that once you start reading these people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that Baptists are are really passionate about, I I think about like Fred Sanders' book, uh, The Deep Things of God, and and he basically goes through the doctrine of the Trinity and talks about how it would help us to, as evangelicals, if we understood the doctrine of the Trinity, how it would help us to be better evangelicals. And he walks through sort of the, the evangelical passion for things like prayer and Bible study and evangelism. And one of the things mm-hmm. that, that Baptists are, are huge on is studying the Bible. Like we have Bible studies galore. And one, one of the things I've started doing is with a couple of the guys from college ministry, we'll sit down and, and work through a particular passage of scripture. And I'll print out the ancient Christian commentary from Thomas Oden on whatever passage that we're working through. And I've, I've found a lot of benefit in reading the Bible with the church fathers. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering for you, how do you think that the church fathers might help us to, to read the Bible? Well, how do you think they might teach us uh, what it looks like to read scripture? Yeah. So 
I think that there are a few ways that they read the Bible that we don't nowadays. The fathers read the Bible as a coherent narrative that that centered on Jesus. And I think, you know, you, you see people in biblical theology beginning to recover that, and that's good. But that has fallen out of fashion. So reading the Bible as, a, as one story that has a center in the person and work of Jesus, and that uh, therefore each particular story in the Bible or each particular you know prophet or psalm or whatever also finds its culmination in the person and work of Jesus. So there's this idea that there's one big story, which Irenaeus referred to as the economy of Scripture. There's a shape to it, an order to it. Uh, and then he also then talked about what's called recapitulation, which is the idea that not only is there one big story, but each particular story also finds its culmination, its its um, completion in the person and work of Jesus. Hmm. Uh, and he also then thirdly talked about something called the hypothesis of Scripture, which is very similar to both those other um, ideas. But the hypothesis of Scripture is, for Irenaeus, he, he uses the example of a mosaic. And for us today, the, the, the example I always use is a puzzle. So Irenaeus says that the hypothesis of Scripture is like a mosaic of uh, the wise king. And, you know, there's all these different pieces in a mosaic, just like there's all these different pieces in a puzzle. And the hypothesis says, this is what the pieces, when they all fit together, are supposed to look like. They're supposed to look like this wise king. So for us today, we would say um, the hypothesis, the analogy is to a, a, a puzzle box top. It shows you what all the pieces are supposed to look like when they are put together correctly. And the way that works itself out is in seeing connections uh, between different parts of Scripture. So some the big word for this is called intertextuality. Uh, the, the idea that uh, the biblical writers are constantly quoting each other yeah. or alluding to each other or echoing each other. And so our job is to... to understand those connections. And once again, all those connections ultimately point to the hypothesis of scripture, which is Jesus. So the the shape or the story of the Bible points and climaxes in Jesus, the particular stories find their completion fulfillment in Jesus. And then there are all these ways in which the different parts of the Bible are connected together textually and by quotation, allusion, or echo to one another. And that's how we get the hypothesis. So that's, that's something I always want to emphasize with my students that we're reading the Bible as a whole. And what does that mean? Well, it means we're reading about that, that all the Bible points to Jesus and in those three ways. Mm. That's a, that's a, that's, that's the biggest one uh, that I want to help my students recover. So, you know, both in, both in terms of uh, just interpretation in general, how to see the Bible as one book pointing to Jesus. And then also doctrinally, there's tons of stuff that we don't do anymore, really, that I think are, are important to recover, and we can recover them by reading the Fathers. That's awesome. Uh, so just a couple things as we kind of wrap up our, our conversation together. Obviously, you're working a lot through the Center for Baptist Renewal to see some of these things recovered in, in particular Baptist life. Could you just talk a little bit about uh, that that project and what you're hoping to accomplish there and and uh, where you're hoping to see things go in the future? Yeah, so uh, Center for Baptist Renewal, you know, right now we're mainly 
a website. You know, at some point we want it to actually be a situation where we've got a location, we've got a, maybe a journal, we've got conferences, stuff like that. But for now, I mean, big picture vision, no matter how it's distributed, is to provide ways in which Baptist churches, Baptist pastors can connect themselves and their churches to the Christian tradition. So, you know, some of our posts, some of our articles are on things like how you can start celebrating the Lord's Supper once a week, which is a you know historic practice of the church. Some of it is, again, practically speaking, uh, liturgically speaking, how do you incorporate reciting creeds uh, into your worship service? And then other, other posts uh, right now are about things like what we've been talking about. Well, how, how does Augustine help us read the Bible? Or how does Irenaeus help us read the Bible? Um, so we're trying to really make this something that's for pastors and uh, and for interested lay people. We want it to be a resource for them to find answers to the kinds of questions that, that we've been talking about. So anything from theoretically, what's the place of tradition to how do you do this in a, lo- in a, in a local church service? Uh, you know, again, there are all kinds of things that we would like to do in the future, but we've, we've only been up for a year. We're trying to, you know, kind of build some, build a foundation of articulating the manifesto, um, writing through those 11 articles. And that's just a sort of, what do we mean by Baptist Catholicity kind of thing? So there's 11 articles. We're trying to uh, finish that. We're trying to build, uh, build a foundation for putting up content and, you know, maybe, maybe a podcast will come, maybe, maybe a journal, maybe conferences, but we, we just, you know, whatever means of distribution happen, bottom line is we want to provide resources for uh, pastors and interested lay people to be able to, to connect to the Christian tradition in a variety of ways. Mm, that's awesome. I, I know I have, uh, I have directed so many people to, uh, the work that you're doing there. Uh, anytime I've got a friend who who starts to get really excited about church history and starts to wrestle with some of the questions we've talked about, I'm always I'm always telling them you have to look at the Center for Baptist Renewal. I love love absolutely love what you're doing. Um, let's assume that there is an interested layperson listening to this and they've heard everything that we've said about uh, church history and and the importance of tradition, how it can help us read the Bible better. There's 2,000 years of Christian history. That's that's a lot to wrap your mind around. Uh, where would you suggest somebody start if if they're coming to this with no background other than just being a Christian and having been in the church? What are some good yeah. starting points? Well, I think that one of the most accessible pieces to read first is Irenaeus on the demonstration of the apostolic preaching it's basically just walking through the Bible and talking about how each story in the Bible points to Jesus. Hmm. But that's, that's, um, that's pretty accessible. I think, you know, it, depending on sort of where they are doctrinally or whatever, something like Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, five theological orations. Uh, those are fantastic. Augustine's confessions is cl- as a classic and it's personal. So it's a bit easier to read probably no matter where you are uh, in terms of your education or your Christian faith. Those are kind of maybe a set of a big three that, you know, you get pretty early with Irenaeus and then you get the Nicene development with 
Ozienzis, and then uh, Augustine's Confessions is just an absolute classic. So but those would be some places to start. There are some books that have come out recently on retrieving the fathers, uh, understanding the fathers. Michael Haken, who teaches at Southern, uh, has a book out recently. Uh, I think it's, uh, the title is escaping me at the moment. I think it's Recovering the Church Fathers. But if you just type in Michael Haken and, and Church Fathers, it should come up, H-A-Y-K-I-N. So those, are, those would be some, uh, I think, good places to start. That's awesome. Man, thank you so much for sitting down with us, Dr. Emerson. I uh, really have appreciated this conversation. Is there anything that you would like to say uh, here at the end? Is there any way for people who are interested in what you're doing, any way for them to keep up with you, uh, any any sort of places to uh, stay in touch with what you're doing? I, I appreciate y'all having me on and for your kind words about the center. You know, We hope it's beneficial for, for people who, who read it. Uh, if you want to follow what we're doing there. Uh, our Twitter handle is at Baptist Renewal. And uh, I think Facebook page is the same thing, facebook.com slash Baptist Renewal. Uh, and so if you, if you like the Facebook page or if you follow the Twitter account or both, uh, you, can, you can see when we post. But we also have a way to subscribe by email if you follow blog content that way. And anything that we put on the site will be updated Uh, error sent to your inbox. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource from the College of Career Ministry of Baylife Church. Our goal is to equip our community to follow Christ faithfully and think carefully about the harder issues in the Christian faith. If you found this podcast helpful, please leave a review and subscribe. For College of Career Ministry, I'm Corey, and this is The Stone Table.